0: The first sermon of the early church was preached by Peter, who stood up with the apostles beside him and preached to the multitude that had gathered due to the commotion of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And we covered that in the first part of chapter 2. Peter has already repudiated the idea of the mockers, that the disciples were drunk. And he has also quoted Joel to show this is the fulfillment of what that prophet had prophesied so many years before. Now Peter is going to move to the resurrection, pointing out that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He says here in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by... Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now we could do a whole sermon just on this. Miracles, signs, and all this wonderful stuff, right? I could do a whole sermon. There's so much the Bible has to say about that, and people need to understand about that. But all I'm going to say about it today is, it says that this is a test by God, that Jesus is attested by God. Because of these things, because of the fact that there were miracles, wonders, and signs. Jesus performed them while on earth. Those gathered there on this day of Pentecost, where Peter is preaching to them, they would have either seen some of these things with their own eyes while Jesus ministered, or they doubtless had heard about it, because he was noised abroad everywhere about these miracles, these wonders, these signs. So they either would have witnessed some of it or they would have heard of it. Peter says this was God attesting to who Christ is. But he doesn't stop there. The real affirmation is the resurrection itself. Look at verses 23 and 24. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This didn't happen by happenstance. God determined this would take place, Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God himself determined this should take place, that Christ should be crucified. He knew it, and he planned it. The scriptures begin speaking about it way back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the prophets later spoke of it. Time and time again, the Psalms spoke of it. The very beginning, we see it. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. God cursed the snake, who was used of and representative of the devil. It says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first reference to Christ in his redemptive work that would be coming for mankind now that the fall had taken place. It was determined by God. And notice Peter says, they did this lawlessly. You see that there? They did this lawlessly. They acted outside of proper justice. There was no legal right for them to put Christ to death. The Jewish leadership used bribes. They used lawless people, a mob, They even broke their own rules for hearings, all to put Christ to death. It was lawlessness. And Peter pulls no punches here. This is gripping stuff he's saying to them, that this was done lawlessly, that you put him to death. You crucified him. But then, verse 24, Jesus was raised from the dead. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The resurrection attests foremost as to who Jesus is. The resurrection attests foremost to who Jesus is. The fact that he was raised from the dead. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 real quickly. And remember what it says there in verse 4. Paul starts out his epistle in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Amen? This was all determined by God, that Christ should come, that he should die, that he should be risen from the dead. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And then look what it says in verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ attests foremost to who He is. That He is the Christ. That He is the Messiah. And that is an important point we must always remember. And notice Peter says it was not possible that He should be held by death. It wasn't possible. That he could be held by death. The Spirit raising him up. The power of God. Peter then quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, where some of the determined purpose of God was revealed long before it took place in time and space. Look what verses 25 through 28 say, which again are the quote, a quote from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. The scripture reads, I foresaw the Lord. Always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One, talking about Christ, to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. In your presence. It was determined by God he knew he was going to raise Christ from the dead by the power of his spirit. When it says he, God, would not leave him, Jesus, in Hades, or hell, or the grave, this is a reference, in this case, to the mere grave. It does not mean Jesus was in actual hell. The Greek word here is hades, Like most all Greek words, it carries multiple connotations and denotations, including the word grave, which many translations use the word grave in 1 Corinthians 15.55, for instance, and it is hades. That is what is in purview here. Context determines the denotation or connotation being employed by the writer, and that is what is in purview in here. Jesus would not be left in the grave, the place of the dead. He would not, as Peter goes on to say, see corruption. Corruption of what? His body rotting. That wouldn't happen to him because he was going to be raised from the dead. Peter continues in his sermon to pound about the resurrection. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Totally opposite of Christ, whose tomb is empty and who is alive now. Now notice that Luke points out that Peter declares David to be a patriarch. Be careful that you don't tell the Christian feminists and their followers that because they would view David as evil if they knew the word patriarchy was in any way connected to David. They'll hate anyone, including John Knox, whose name is associated with patriarchy. They're crazy, and their hermeneutic is novel, unbiblical tripe. And I've preached against it in the past here. Verse 30, it goes on and says, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Still talking about David here. Notice it says he's a prophet. Did you know David was a prophet? How was David a prophet? The Psalms. He wrote the Psalms, right? And many of those Psalms are prophecies about the coming Messiah. Amen? Amen. So Peter says, therefore, being a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, Jesus did come through David's lineage, right? According to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Notice it says the Christ, and that's because Christ is a title. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one or chosen one. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word used for Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the chosen one, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one through whom we obtain salvation. These were huge words to the Jews who were listening to him as he preached on the day of Pentecost. Goes on in verse 31 and says. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. They were actual eyewitnesses. Peter was, and the other apostles, of all that he's telling them about. So Peter has now explained what is happening here with the speaking in tongues, which they see and hear. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which you may recall from my last sermon was being talked about in that day as possibly soon occurring, talked about amongst the Jews. It is the result of Jesus being crucified, risen from the dead, gone to the Father at his very right hand, and receiving the promise of the Father, the Spirit outpoured is the result of that. That's huge. Paul made it clear in Galatians. How did you get the Spirit? Through your good works? Through being circumcised? No, you got it through faith in Christ. That's the sole means whereby we get it. Verses 34 and 35, as Peter preaches on, says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is a quote, for those of you taking notes, from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus actually quoted it regarding himself. Jesus himself quoted this regarding himself in John, chapter 12, verse 35. Peter no doubt remembered that and says it here in the very first sermon. Yes, Christ's kingdom is a conquestorial kingdom. It has enemies, and they will be put under his footstool. It is not just for the individual, but also for nations. Verse 36 Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Whenever you see a therefore, you should see what it's there for, right? In other words, based on everything Peter just said, here's his conclusion. Here in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Remember, the resurrection attests most fully to who Christ is, that he is the Messiah and the Christ. And notice also that Peter didn't try to water it down or to be winsome like modern Christians. He just talks frankly. He didn't make it worse than it was. He didn't go on and on and say a bunch of wild stuff or something like that. But he didn't do what much of modern Christianity would do, where they water it down so they can be winsome. He says plainly, whom you crucified. Whom you crucified. Now, verses 37 through 41 gives us the result this is where things get interesting. Verses 37 through 41 detail the result of this first sermon. And it says in verse 37, Now when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now the word cut here, where it says they were cut to the heart, conveys the idea of a sharp pain associated with anxiety and remorse. Remorse. They see that they had rejected the very means whereby they could obtain salvation. They had rejected Christ. By crucifying the Messiah, they had rejected their only hope of salvation. But remember, this was all according to the determined purpose of God salvation was now available to all. But they had sinned. And the Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sin. And when the Holy Spirit shows you the awfulness of your sin, you are cut to the heart. Understand, they were cut to the heart because they were believing Peter's message about Jesus. That's why they were cut to the heart, because they were believing what Peter was saying that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. So they ask, what shall we do? And Peter answers in verse 38. And he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice Peter didn't say, repeat this little prayer after me. This verse is a huge problem for those who want to get people to parrot a little prayer. There is no little prayer to parrot here. There isn't even anything said about believing in Jesus here. Okay, the little parroting prayer is seen nowhere in the entire New Testament. And we reject the little parroting prayer as a device of late in American Christianity, a device that has created many a false convert. But this matter of nothing being said about believing in Jesus, well, that has been said repeatedly throughout the New Testament, how important that is for salvation. But why not here? Why not here in the very first sermon? Why does not even bring up? You have to believe in Jesus. And the answer is because they were already believing in Jesus as Peter preached. We need to remember that Luke is not setting forth a systematic theology here in Acts, nor was Peter preaching a systematic theology sermon. It's a recurrence of something that was happening live on the street, there in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost. This was not didactic teaching. Having preached many times, including out on the streets myself, I am sure Peter already saw the Holy Spirit was at work in the hearts of many who he was preaching to. That they were believing his message about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. They were cut to the heart. Hence the question, what must we do? So he says, what is needed? Repent. When the Holy Spirit is convicting us, listen to me now, when the Holy Spirit is convicting us and regenerating us, we not only taste his love, but we also taste his holiness. He is the one who enables us to turn from our sin. The Holy Spirit does. You understand that, right? No one just wakes up one morning and willy-nilly of his own volition decides, "Ah, I think today I will repent of my sins and turn to Jesus. Does not happen. God must be at work in the heart of a man for a man to turn from his sin. Some people try to break it all down and say, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. The truth of the matter is, there's all kinds of stuff happening when God transforms a man. Many of them believed the gospel already as Peter had been preaching. We know this by the context itself. Look at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. They already believed what he was saying. That's why they were cut to the heart. Repentance is a must this word repent in the Greek implies a complete change of heart and a confession of sin and this is what happens to a man when the Holy Spirit is transforming him and he has believed the gospel. So he was telling them what they needed to hear as many of them already believed. Then he brings up baptism. Peter actually ties baptism to the forgiveness of sin. And many, because of that, in this passage, falsely believe, and this is their proof text for their false belief, that Peter was therefore teaching baptismal regeneration. And quite frankly, I've heard many a sermon where ministers address this passage to try to refute baptismal regeneration, and they do a pretty poor job of it, I must say. Peter actually ties baptism to the forgiveness of sin, and many falsely believe, and this is their proof text, that Peter was therefore teaching baptismal regeneration. In other words, rather than falsely having people parrot the little prayer, you just have to falsely get them wet, and they'll be saved. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. That baptism is what brings the change and makes you saved. We do not believe that. That is false teaching because we don't believe it because there are so many verses where the Bible is clear. We are saved through faith in Christ with nothing else mentioned, just faith in Christ. And this is important to biblical hermeneutics, how to properly interpret Scripture. The hallmark of good hermeneutic is Scripture Interpret scripture. Scripture with a big S interprets scripture with a small S. In other words, when you're looking at a particular verse, scripture with a small S, you have to look at it through the lens of the whole of scripture, scripture with a big S. Scripture with a big S interprets scripture with a small S. And when you look at the whole of God's word, you see overwhelmingly it's faith. It's faith, believing in Jesus. That is paramount and nothing is mentioned in addition with it. So we do not believe in baptismal regeneration, and we do not believe that this passage is teaching. And this is where so many ministers do poor in the sermons I've listened to. What they try to do with this verse, then, is where they do poorly. So what of this? What do we say of this? Understand this matter of baptism would be huge to these Jewish listeners of Peter. They believed baptism was for the Gentiles to do converting to Judaism. Here, Peter is telling them they must be baptized in the name of Jesus. This is like revolutionary to them. Baptism was important to the Jews because the Jewish mind does not divorce inward spirituality from its outward expression like our minds readily can. They have a different mindset and a totally different mindset at that time in history. Let me repeat that to you and note it well in your mind. Baptism was important to the Jews because the Jewish mind does not divorce inward spirituality from its outward expression, like ours readily can, or more easily can. Baptism with water was the expected symbol of conversion, though it was not an indispensable criterion for salvation. And that's why Christian people, after someone believes in Christ, baptizes them, right? Baptism with water was the expected symbol of conversion, though it was not an indispensable criterion for salvation, even in the Jews' mind. This was the next step after believing Repent, turn from all sin, and get baptized as an outside expression of what had already happened inside. Get baptized as an outward expression of what had already happened internally. That is why, as one scholar put it, that I read, quote, whenever the gospel was proclaimed in a Jewish melu, the rite of baptism was taken for granted as being inevitably involved, unquote. And he cites various passages from the book of Acts to affirm his assertion. And here they are, if you want to mark them down. Besides here, you also have Acts eight twelve, Acts eight thirty-six through thirty eight, Acts nine eighteen, Acts ten. Forty seven through forty eight, Acts eighteen eight, and Acts nineteen five. Okay, so right about now some people are thinking, My golly, you really have to use your brain at this church to listen to these sermons. And this is taxing. Can't you just be like most pastors, Pastor Matt, and just kind of pull out some, you know, pom poms from behind the pulpit and give a little pep talk on a self improvement program? so you can be a better businessman and make more money and have more money to spread around. You know, Oh, yeah, that's right, they don't do that. They just build bigger barns for themselves. And can't you just do that, Pastor Matt? I mean, come on. Somebody told me last week they visited a church the week before, and that church was going through the entire book of Acts in three Sundays. How is that even possible? And then he told me what the first sermon was like. And I understood how it was possible. It was so despicable. So what did we sing about while Robert was leading us in worship today in his southern fashion? We sang about loving him with all of our mind, right? Our mind. We're to love him with all of our mind. Okay? All of our strength, all of our heart. Praise his holy name. So, buck up. This is important stuff that I'm talking about here. As I go on here, I write, And the Jews continued to practice water baptism as the external symbol by which those who believed the gospel, repented of their sins, and acknowledged Jesus as their Lord, publicly bore witness to their new life. Okay. Verse 39. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This again, like I mentioned in last week's sermon regarding verse 21, is the, another shot across the bow, so to speak, to the Jews that this gospel was going to be more, for more than just them. Remember verse 21? And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I was like an inkling towards what was coming. And now, here, Peter says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. And when you get up to chapter 8, guess who gets called? The Samaritans. Which, of course, the Jews hated the Samaritans. You know that, right? And so, one of the main points of the awesomeness of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He was a Samaritan! (laughs) And the two Jewish dudes had just gone by and did nothing. And the Samaritan, who they all hated, does the right thing. Jesus was always messing with their minds, right? So, And then it was even going to get worse. Not only were the Samaritans in on this thing, but when you get to chapter 10 and 11 of the book of Acts... The Gentiles are in on this thing. It, it really is whoever, you know. It really is as many, you know. This is like a huge thing. This is bizarre to the Jews. They're thinking this is their little pet deal. When it says "as many as the Lord our God will call," Second 2 Thessalonians two fourteen. Mark that down. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 states plainly that men are called to salvation by what? By the preaching of the gospel. That's how men are called. Jesus said he would draw men unto himself through his crucifixion and resurrection. Did he not? He did. In the book of John. Men are called through the preaching of the gospel. What does that mean for us? We must preach. That's what it means for us. That's hugely important because you live in the midst of Christianity that tells you you have no right to preach until you have at least a two-year relationship with someone. It's got to be two years before you have the audacity or the right to tell them about Jesus. You, You live in the midst of a Christianity that says that preach the gospel, use words if necessary... Right? That's their little mantra, slogan. You know, a Christian that just wants to pass out water bottles on a hot day with their church's slogan and address on it in their church times, right? Let's build the moose club up. Let's be light. Let's bring them into the kingdom without realizing they've been brought into the kingdom. (laughs) Like that's possible. That's how most operate nowadays, Right? We must preach, we must declare his gospel to men and to the nations of men. People will not come to know the Lord through osmosis or random acts of kindness. We must use words, we must speak, we must declare the gospel to men. I'm talking about you. You must do it. He calls upon all of us to do it. You can't just say, I hope someone tells him about Jesus someday. You're the somebody. You tell him about Jesus. Leave literature. Talk with your mouth. You have to declare his words. Look what it says in verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. You could change that out for, with many other words, he warned and pleaded with them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Wow, that's strong words. Peter said that his generation was perverse. He didn't call it the greatest generation in order to win them over so they might be more accepting of the gospel message. He called it a perverse generation, And Jesus said the same thing about this generation that lived at that time. What we have here, by the way, we have the same thing in our day. A perverse generation. Despicable to the core. Filled with pride and utter rebellion against Christ and his rule. What we have here with this mention of a perverse generation, what we have here with this type of language being employed is the vision of the evangelist and the prophet. Is the vision of the evangelist and the prophet, which unfortunately is often lost on a Christianity like we have in America today, where the gospel is acclimated to the world and the world is acclimated to the church. And I say that with grief in my heart. Verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. See? They had already believed. The next thing he was supposed to talk about was repenting and baptizing. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000. Verse 42 and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We do all those things here each Sunday, don't we? We have teaching, doctrine. We have fellowship. Sometimes you don't get out of here till 1 o'clock. We have the breaking of bread, which here the assumption seems to be towards the Lord's table, and in prayers. We pray here. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Not just among believers, but every soul means to address the unbelievers. Fear came upon all of them. The church was on fire and was having an impact upon men Look at verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This must have been an awesome time of fellowship with this type of trust and community with each other, that they held their possessions in common, that they were doing these things daily, getting together. And by the way, what is described here, this is not communism. Some wicked folk called liberation theologians try to proof text this passage and tell us that communism is biblical because of this passage here. This is not communism. How do we know that? Because communism is the civil government forcing people to participate. This was all done voluntarily. Also, this was not hippieism, where they all lived together in some commune. Notice they went from house to house, in the very next verse, from house to house. They all still had their own place, but they held things in common and they helped each other out. It wasn't like they all gathered on one piece of real estate and all hung out together. And by the way, that never turns out good. Ever. Read history. This was meant for that situation, how they were living, and it soon ended, we know, historically, where they held all things common. But understand this. This must have been an awesome time of fellowship. A real closeness in the body of Christ there at Jerusalem. And people long for that today. Too often, church is the only time Christians see each other. No ministry on the streets together. No time of eating together. No fellowship. And people long for that. Especially when they're young in the faith. And we could use more of that here at Mercy Seat. As some of us have grown old in the faith. Verses 46 and 47 Look what it says. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Note that. In the temple. They still went to temple. They still observed a lot of the customs. And this will become a conflict. It'll become a conflict numerous times and it will boil to a head when we get to chapter 15 of Acts. They're in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, that's talking about just eating together, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Isn't it awesome when God gives you favor with people? If you've gone through a long stretch where like, you can't seem to have favor with anyone, and then all of a sudden you have favor with people, it's like one of those pinch me moments. Am I having favor with people? What an unusual course of events. So at this time they're having favor with people. You know that's all going to change, right? The Jewish leadership was going to make sure that all changed. But for right now they have, they have this favor with men. Their, Their minds hadn't been poisoned yet by the Jewish hierarchy. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. How are men saved? By believing the gospel, by turning from their sin, believing in Christ. Amen? And getting baptized afterwards. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I learned when I was in Bible college that you're taught all kinds of things how to attract people to come to your church. I'd rather be shot in the head and left by the side of the road than do the things I was taught there, that you have to do to keep people engaged and involved. No way. Either God adds people to the church or forget it. But yet you have all these churches who operate on the basis of a moose club and memberships everything. Numbers are paramount. And so you got to get them in there. So you water down how you talk. You're not faithful and true to him. And they all enjoy it. And most of them don't even know Christ. They gather week after week and go through the little religious charade. Most pastors, when someone shows up from another church, what do they do? They brown nose them, and then they hope they can pull out a bigger offering plate to get their money. If I know somebody's already a Christian, they come over here, well, the first things I ask them, why are you here? <laughs> why are you here? Because if God hasn't joined you to this congregation, why would I want you to be here? Why would you want to be here? Do you understand how important that is? God has brought, just look around, us to be together. Yeah, and there's a bunch of us missing this morning, too. <laughs> so there's other folks, too. And he has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for our congregation. He has a purpose for us as the body of Christ, expressed as this local congregation. May we be faithful and true to him. Amen? Amen. May we love each other. May we build each other up in the faith. May we be true and honest with each other. We'll stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.